I love celebrating birthdays. You probably do too. We love celebrating birthdays, other people's birthdays, our own birthday. We do it here at church. So once a month, on the last Sunday of the month, we have Lord's Supper and church lunch. We like alliteration too. So it's Lord's Supper, lunch, and we'll celebrate one another's birthdays. We get people up and we sing to them. We love to celebrate others. I particularly love celebrating people's birthdays who don't like the limelight. Our little boy Wesley's six, and every birthday, he's not a limelight kind of person. He just wants to do Lego in the background. But when it's birthday time, we get him around the table, we get the family, sing happy birthday, and he just he pulls in, and he becomes this little shy, and he's smiling because people are singing about me? Really? Then we just love celebrating someone through their birthday. We do it on Facebook, social media. We share it around. We say hi. And, oh, it's your birthday today. We, we give people that attention that says, we value you. We love you. Happy birthday to you. If it's your birthday today, happy birthday to you. Let us know. We'll sing. We love celebrating birthdays. All the more then, we celebrate when someone is born again. Like celebrating the day someone was born into the world is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But celebrating the day that they are born twice, they are born again, now that for the church causes us to clap. We give the two hands of fellowship, we celebrate, we, we sing songs, we love seeing the sign of baptism. Not that we, by baptizing, see a person become a Christian, that's not where it happens, because the Lord has done a work that we could not do. He has done something that humans cannot manufacture. You couldn't get water good enough to do what the Lord does by his sprinkling, his washing, his baptism. That's what we love so much, celebrating being born again. In John 3, it's Nicodemus who comes to Jesus and has a conversation about this very thing. And we meet Nicodemus in John 3, and we'll see him throughout the Gospel of John, actually. We, we see him at different times. He's there in the scenes, in the background. But here we see him meeting Jesus for the first time in this conversation in John 3. It's in verses 1 to 2. If you're following along in the outline, the booklet there, you'll see there's a sermon outline. And we see Nicodemus meeting Jesus, which if you are new and visiting with us this morning, perhaps this is also you meeting Jesus for the first time, because when you meet Jesus in the Bible, you are really meeting him. He's speaking to you. He's talking to you. He's not just having a conversation with Nicodemus. He's having a conversation with you now. So here is Nicodemus meeting Jesus. And the context, of course, is what's just been before. That's why it's helpful. Had a Bible open. Context is your friend. Look at the context. Just before John 3, we see in chapter 2, Verse 23, Jesus in Jerusalem for a while for the Passover feast, and many believe in him because of the signs. But Jesus will not entrust himself to people who just want to follow him because of the fancy signs he does. In fact, the interesting thing about the text is, the Greek word is pistis, it's belief. Literally, Jesus won't believe in them who believe in him based on signs alone. He won't believe in people who just want to believe in him based on signs and wonders. Because signs and wonders are not true belief. That's not where you've got to stay when it comes to Jesus. But there's something about this man and the signs that Nicodemus sees. Nicodemus belongs to a club. 
If they had jackets on the back, it would be the Pharisees. He belongs to this club. It's a pretty big club. And they're particularly into righteousness and law. And he's a ruler of the Jews, John tells us. And he comes to Jesus with this statement in verse 2 of chapter 3. He comes along by night and he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, we know in the previous chapter, Jesus is cautious about signs. Uh, We looked at this in our study guide, actually, for our groups. If you want to see our group guides, they're online, where you can go into the the text in a deeper way in our groups. We do that each week. We saw this in our group guide. Go to our website. You can find it there. There is a problem with signs, and particularly Jews. The Jews of the day get entangled in this problem. Paul, a Jew himself, writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, famously, he says, Greeks of the day, what do they look for? If you're a Gentile, you're a Greek, what are you looking for? And think, think Greek history. What do, what do Greek or Roman people look for when they're looking for something that's worthy of their interest? They look for wisdom, philos, philosophy. Greeks look for wisdom, Paul says. We know this in our history books today, don't we? And then he says, what do Jews look for? They look for signs. They look for signs. They want to see something miraculous, something special. Show me the sign, show me the wonder, I'll be wondrously amazed, I will marvel at it, and then I might consider believing it. Seeing is believing. Do you know people like that today? That's the Jews of that day. They look for signs. And Jesus knows this because Jesus knows the human heart. Jesus is the great heart reader because he's the great God in flesh. And he knows the human heart. He knows that people in our sinful state are bent out of shape. We're confused often when we think we've, we just know it all, but we're actually confused. <laughs> we're broken. We're vain. We put our trust in wise words alone or in signs and wonders alone rather than in Christ alone. We should be aware of the danger ourselves. Now, whatever brought Nicodemus to Jesus, it seems Nicodemus genuinely was impressed with Jesus. He genuinely thought there's something worthy to go and look into this. He came by night perhaps to avoid giving the impression to anyone else that he was even interested in Jesus. You know, he's a teacher after all. But he does use the word we. Perhaps he's come as an envoy from the Pharisees. He's, He's come along, whatever the case may be, he comes with this statement, this question, and it seems to connect with the kingdom of God. Because at this point... At this very point, we see Jesus meet Nicodemus' question with a phrase that almost seems like it's a big gear change for us, but it's right at the heart of what Nicodemus is asking. You see, Nicodemus is interested in the kingdom of God. Now, we might not be. Australians interested in kingdoms? I thought we were supposed to be going republic direction, like... Us Aussies, we, when we hear kings and queens, we're like, yeah, the queen, she's nice, yeah, Charles, yeah. You know, so we kind of like, we, we have this reaction. It's almost Australians have an allergy to royalty or kings and queens. It's kind of part of our history and our fabric and nature. You know, they dumped us here and then we had to make our own country. So when we hear kingdoms, we don't kind of get what Nicodemus is really getting at, what Jesus is getting at, but we need to feel this because we actually do look for kingdoms. We chase our own kingdoms. We chase our own kingdoms. We build a kingdom out of our career. We build a kingdom out of just being cool, 
We build a kingdom out of my own happiness. Life is a chase. It's a pursuit of me racing to get my kingdom established before I die. Many of us, well, actually, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us lose that race. But that's what we do. We chase the dream of comfort. We chase that kingdom. But the kingdom of God eclipses that, like the sun eclipses the moon. The kingdom of God is much bigger than that. And Nicodemus has an interest in it, so Jesus cuts to the chase. He cuts to what Nicodemus is pursuing, and he says, how can you be part of the kingdom of God? Jesus says this, truly, truly, verse 3, I say to you, now by the way, Jesus is the only one that uses that phrase at the start of a sentence, truly, truly, amen, amen. Jesus is the only one that can say that. And he says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, she cannot see the kingdom of God. That is a difficult phrase for Nicodemus to grasp. So we can understand if it's hard for you too, hard for me. Uh, my mum was a midwife for I don't know, 30, nearly 40 years. She's retired now. Uh, she's a midwife and a nurse. Um, I myself, I grew up on a farm and I've delivered many calves and lambs uh, and that's what I've done, often in trouble. So you don't go you know, say, hey, sheep, would you like me to help deliver your lamb? I offer a service. We're not doing that. We're doing it because the sheep's in trouble, right? We're doing it by the time we get there, probably, you know, often it's too late. Same with a cow. Uh, Labor, I get this, and you probably get this too, even if you've never delivered anything. Labor is difficult. It's why they call it labor. Like giving birth to something is a difficult process. Fellas, it's difficult, isn't it? You may have heard about it. it involves a lot of screaming. It's also beautiful. Giving birth, being born into the world is a beautiful thing. We celebrate it with birthdays, but we go, we get this. It's difficult. But then Jesus takes the difficulty level of labor and he just takes it out of this world by saying, you've got to do it again. You've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what in the world? How on earth can one be born again? Nicodemus asks. And Jesus is not speaking, of course, about a physical being born again, but a spiritual. Now, we may think at this point, this is a lot of Christian jargon. You know, a lot of Christian jargon here. This is just Christians spinning and selling a Christian experience. And perhaps in a different context, like America, that often is the reaction. They've heard about being born again on those born again Christians, and it's being, being heard as something, I'm just, I'm just spinning an experience. I read a political piece the other day where they talk about a born again um, political uh, kind of platform, and, and what they mean by that is they're kind of attaching some sort of Christian spin to it. We can see it as Christian jargon only, that only Christians can understand. Like only farmers can understand what an articulated tractor is. Really? The tractor's articulated? Like it's really proficient at speaking and rhetoric? Goodness. No, it bends in the middle. That's what an articulated tractor does. 
But that's what it can be like for Christian jargon, can't it? Like, we get it. We're like, oh yeah, born again. Totally understand what you're talking about. I'm there with you. I understand spiritually what that means. I get it. In fact, you can't be a member of a reforming church unless you're born again. We get it, like, straight away. But remember, our world is listening on. They're looking on and they're going, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like you just told me about an articulated tractor. Is it just Christian spin? Or... We could mistake what Jesus is talking about as some sort of philosophical, enlightening experience. You know, you need to have the right words, the right wisdom. You need to understand. You need to be educated. Have the right knowledge, which is where the Gnostics go wrong. Paul writes against the Gnostics in Colossians. We need to have the right knowledge. If I just be smart enough, if I just could be like these people here in this church, who, you know, who they seem like they're smart enough, then I'll be able to be born again. Is that what's going on? No, it's not either. Because if we actually listen to Jesus, we hear what it means to be born again. John 3 verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. See, born again by water is a reference to being cleansed from sin. We saw this in Ezekiel 36. Born again by the Spirit is a reference to the work of God in a person's heart to make them a new creation. Again, we saw that in Ezekiel 36. Born again is what theologians helpfully call regeneration. A regenerate heart, a renewed heart. A Christian person is someone who's had their inner life changed. Their heart is renewed because the Spirit has done something wonderful. The Spirit's created them a new person, a new life. The Spirit has actually turned their face towards God, where before we ignored Him, we rebelled against Him. It's only by the Spirit that any of us, that I or you, could have our face turned towards God with trust in Him, that we'd listen to Him, that we'd love Him. Such is a person who's part of the kingdom of God. See, if you're born into this world of just flesh and you stay in the flesh and nothing spiritually happens to you, you die in the flesh. You can't enter the kingdom of God by merits of the flesh. You can't somehow make yourself a better person, be better educated, be be more impressive to get into the kingdom of God. You can't do that. You can't do a thing. The only way you get into the kingdom of God is by being born again by the Spirit of God. Now, this is something to marvel at. It seems amazing, almost unbelievable. And Nicodemus is marvelling. But Jesus says in verse 7, don't marvel. In fact, don't be surprised. You don't need to be surprised. Why? Because this has always been the way. Like, why do we think, even Christians think, like in the Old Testament, God was all about just keep the rules, and the New Testament, now he's about being born again. Why do we treat God's word that way? Why do we treat God that way? That's not the way God has worked. There are two covenants, two major covenants in Scripture. There's lots of other smaller ones, but there's two major ones. Covenant of works and covenant of grace. How long did the covenant of works last? Just obey God's law and you'll live. How long did that last? Two chapters. Genesis 1 and 2 was a covenant of works. We broke it, we're fallen, we cannot enter the kingdom of God by just obeying the law. And so ever since Genesis 3, and by the way, the first glimmer of the Gospels in Genesis 3.15, 
Where God says, I'm going to send an offspring who's going to come and save. An offspring from you who will save the humans. God has always been acting by a covenant of grace ever since Genesis 3. He's always done this. The only way any of us can get in the kingdom of God is because the king himself comes and gets us into the kingdom of God. Don't marvel. Instead, believe. Regeneration is God's sovereign moving and saving. So what is our responsibility? Is trusting. Repentance. Turning to him and turning from our sin. It's all about a turn, a change in the heart, and the spirit ultimately is the power that brings it out. Friends, if you're struggling with this, if you're struggling with the concept, this is how God saves. We all struggle at times. Nicodemus struggled. And get this, he was the teacher of Israel. Yet what Nicodemus needed to see is that this has always been God's way. And so what Jesus does next in verses 9 to 15, what Jesus does next is show us it's always been God's way. Because look at verse 9. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? How can these things be? I love Jesus' answer. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, you know, these guys are the elite teachers, right? And they don't get it. Often he comes with that great answer. Jesus says, have you not read? Like he's talking to Pharisees. Of course they've read. How many people, I've got friends, I say, you know, let's, let's look at who Jesus is in the Bible. Oh, I've read the Bible. Okay, okay. What do you think Jesus is about? Oh, he's all about being a nice guy. Okay. Well, I love you, man. You have probably not read the Bible. <laughs> have you not read? Well, maybe you read it, you just, you just don't get it. Jesus has to carefully show Nicodemus again, this is God's way. In verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? You do not understand these things? It's incredible. But, but here Jesus now gives him another Old Testament lesson in God's grace. And Jesus speaks about how God saves. We heard from Ezekiel 36, the sprinkling of water. But then we go in John 3. And we look at verse 14, and Jesus takes us to an Old Testament incident, a scene, a situation. And he says in John 3, verse 14, look, Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is Jesus talking about? We read Numbers 21. We always read cross-reference passages from the corresponding testament, we, we do that. We read Numbers 21 because that's what Jesus is talking about. You see, Israel has been freed from slavery out of Egypt, going to the promised land, and what do they do the whole way? Do they sing songs of praise and gratefulness? No, they whinge and complain. In the scene we meet, as they whinge and complain about their leaders <laughs> and to their leaders, and about their God, they're even saying, the food that God's provided is horrible. It's no good. It's terrible. Why do we always do this in our community? Why do we always do that? Why do I... Blah, blah, blah. It just goes on. The whinging, complaining, it just continues. And it... At one point, Moses has just had enough. And this is a very patient man. He strikes a rock. You want some water? Here's some water. 
Who wants the ministry of Moses? And as they whinge and complain, this time in Numbers 21, God brings upon them a judgment, a punishment. And he sends what we read in Numbers 21 is fiery serpents. And they bite people and they start dying, convulsing, death, judgment. And they cry out. And what does God do? He provides a way to be healed and saved. And here's where it gets interesting. Go and make a fiery serpent, a bronze or copper serpent. Probably copper, it probably shone, that's what the word means, fiery. Fashion it, put it on a pole. Now, remember, this is a million-odd people, right? So it's not just like they've got something on a stage this high and then the people, when you get bitten by a snake, look at it. Not, not camping like a Bridgewater, where perhaps you're kind of just hanging around a little campsite. No, oh, I got bitten by a snake. Look, at This thing has to be big. So it's lifted up high. So you're out in this big camp. You get bitten by a serpent. You then go, I know I need to look at that thing. I need to look at that raised up, lifted up serpent and I will live. Why? Because there's something magic in the bronze and the copper? No, because that's God's promise. You're looking at the serpent and say, I trust you, God, at your promise that you will save me if I look and trust at your promise. And do you see what Jesus is saying? Just like the serpent is lifted up on that pole, anyone who looks at Christ lifted up on the cross with that faith and that trust will be saved, will be healed. Isn't it wonderfully ironic? In Numbers 21, the very thing that brought judgment, a serpent biting you, is transformed. It's the very thing that now, if you trust in God's sign, you trust in his promise, that's the very thing that now becomes your salvation. Isn't that the cross? The very thing that brings punishment, judgment, judgment and death on a cross, Galatians 3.13, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. The very thing that we deserve is now transformed into the very thing we look at by faith in Christ on that cross. The judge goes to the cross himself. The judge goes to the cross and he is judged for you, for me. He takes the judgment. He takes the punishment so that you look to Christ on that cross and all you've got to do, you can't suck the blood out of the venom of death. You can't save yourself. You cannot save a thing. But you look to his promise at the cross and you say, I trust, I believe, and you are saved. That's the cross of Christ. The one raised up, lifted up, the son of man, a favorite phrase of Jesus, the son of God, Christ, the Messiah on the cross. So that not just a million people, but whoever around the world looks at him at that cross and trusts in him, is saved. The cross was a symbol of sin, shame and judgment. And to all those who look at it now, it's a symbol of salvation. And whoever believes in him has eternal life. To have eternal life to believe is to begin with a spirit working, turning your eyes toward the cross of Christ. Now what's, I think, exegetically fascinating in this text, and that's just a funny way of saying the words are important. What I think is 
fascinating in this text. In the English, it's kind of a bit harder to see, but you've actually got a footnote in your Bibles, probably. Um, church Bibles here will probably have a footnote. My ESV Bible has a footnote. What's interesting is, in verse 7, verse 11, and verse 12, Jesus, when he says you, is not just talking to Nicodemus. Because the you is plural. In Australian, we call it yous. So whoever yous who believe in Jesus, whoever yous, you, all of us, this is how salvation works. Yous all must need to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And this gives us context for the most famous Bible verse, I think, around John 3.16. And that new birth is given to all who believe in Christ. Just like we saw with the snake, the serpent, new birth comes by the death of Christ because new birth is then given to all who believe in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, God's love is not sentimental. It's love that has action. It's specifically given by Jesus coming in our place. This is the mission of God. We notice throughout the Bible, actually, God is the first missionary, for he sends his son. We get the Latin word missio, which comes from sent, missionary. Apostolos, apostle, sent one. Jesus is the first one. He's the sent one into the world to save the humans. And Jesus is the one who comes to die in our place. And where before, by the way, the kingdom of God, God's kingdom was, well, for the Jews and then maybe for the Gentiles who came. Notice this, it's now for whoever believes around the world. But friends, isn't believing our biggest battle? That's our biggest struggle. We put up all sorts of barricades to believing it. The human heart does not grasp grace very well at all. I grew up in a Christian home like Annika did. I was ashamed that my parents were believers. My hero was my ag high school teacher who was also my cadet uh, uh, officer. So I didn't want him to know that I came from a Christian home because he made it clear that he was not really a fan of Christianity. And then, miracle of miracles, I became a Christian at about 17, 18. No discernible day, but I struggled with grace for, for many years. Because the human heart struggles with grace. Really believing it? Like if I just trust in Jesus, like I need to do some stuff, right? I need to clean my life up before I really get into church life. Don't I? No. You don't clean your life up. He does that for you. You just come as messed up as you are. And you want to know what messed up's like? Come and meet me. Talk with me. I'm wearing a nice shirt, but this covers up a messy person. We are all in need of grace. We all have baggage. We all have search history. We all have stuff in our life that we would not want put on the screen, me included. And we all need Christ because God is the heart reader. Jesus is the heart reader and he knows what you need. You need forgiveness of sin. You need relationship with him. And he comes so that you just got to believe in him and have eternal life now. 
starting now. Not eternal life when you're 70, eternal life starting now. We are the ones who have distanced ourselves from God. We get so easily slighted, don't we? Someone says the slightest thing. Like you can be, you can have a friend with someone, and in the last two years particularly, you can be friends with someone and they say one little thing you disagree with and we can't just love people. We're just, we're done, we're done here. We move on. And we do that with God? The one who shows us grace upon grace upon grace, our struggle is believing it, is it not, friends? So what if you haven't loved God up until now? What if you haven't known him as your God? Jesus is saying gently to you, you need to repent and believe in him. You must be born again. You must believe and have eternal life. It can't just be because you're impressed by Jesus by signs. It can't just be because Jesus seems to have good, wise things to say and do in his leadership. It's got to be that you see he is the one lifted on the cross for you. Friends, don't step into eternity without Jesus. Our life is so fragile. Every day, open the news. Someone got up that day, they got dressed, they went to work, they went to play, they did something, bam, they had a car accident. They did not plan for that. They didn't plan to be hit by that bus. They didn't plan to get so sick that they were dead a week later. Our life is so fragile. Put your trust in Christ so that when you step into eternal life, He is there, ready to hold your hand and say, welcome to the kingdom of God. And listen to Jesus. Jesus is gentle and he's serious. For he says here, whoever does not believe is condemned already. You cannot be neutral with Jesus. Aussies love being neutral on lots of things. Yeah, nah. You can't be yeah, nah with Jesus. You're either believing upon him or you're going to believe upon something else, my works or something else I can do, but you can do nothing and I hope you've seen that. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, a teacher, he's saying to you, you might not be a teacher, he's saying you can only believe on him for eternal life. And for us who are born again, for us who know we look to Christ and believe, that may have happened for you as a kid. We know, in fact, in Luke 1 and in Jeremiah 1, John the Baptist and Jeremiah both were God's people from the womb. How can that be? Well, it's got to be a spiritual work, hasn't it? It's got to be a work of the Spirit. It might be as a teenager, 16-year-old like Annika. It might be as an adult Many of us can't nail down a day that the wind blew. When Nicodemus is meeting with Jesus, Jesus picks up an illustration. He's come at night. It's probably a windy night. Jesus says, the wind, you can hear it, but you don't know which way it's going to blow. Same with the Spirit. I can't tell you a particular time, but the Spirit blew. And finally, I, I got it. I understood it, but it wasn't just me understanding it. It was that he helped me. He made me. He caused me to be born again. 
And I believe, I trust. Friends, for those of you who trust in Jesus, we celebrate more than birthdays now. We celebrate being born again. And I think this means for us in this moment, as we wrap it up, there are three ways we celebrate for us that we really need to think upon and reflect upon and act upon. Three ways we celebrate as those who are born again. And the first one is, I want to speak to the struggler. We're born again. You're born again, I'm born again. You believe in Jesus, but you struggle. You're the struggler. All of us struggle as Christians. We suffer, we sin. And it may be that right now, like Nicodemus, you are struggling. So maybe verse 9 is your verse, struggler. Maybe verse 9 is your verse. Perhaps you've said, you know, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I'm not, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if this is me. I, how do I know I'm a Christian? I'm not sure if I'm a believer. Perhaps that's you, you're a struggler. Can I get you to look at verse 9? Verse 9 is for you. Because Nicodemus says, how can these things be? That's your verse. Because I think we go from that, we go from here's the, here's the real struggle you're having. How can these things be for me? That's how personal it gets. It moves from how can these things be to how can I be born again? If you track Nicodemus' life just throughout John's Gospel, it can be hard to tell, but it seems Nicodemus becomes a believer. He's a quiet kind of background kind of guy. We see him a few times in John, but at the end... After the Son of Man, after the Son of God, after Jesus is lifted on that cross, you know what happens? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come and take his body off the cross to lay it in a tomb. They embalm him, they, they put spices, they, they, they treat his body carefully. Nicodemus struggled, right? But he kept looking to Christ and his cross, and that's what you and I need to do. Struggler, friend, look to Christ and his cross. If you are concerned and you're introspectively saying, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Am I really safe? Can I encourage you? The answer is not found in you. The answer is found by looking at Christ and the cross and saying, I believe in him. The answer is him. He is the way that keeps you saved and safe. Then there's the second person. There's a person who's tempted to say, well, I got saved my way. Like I'm a Christian, but I did it my way. I was the one who reached out. I was the one that was able to work it out. I was the one, hey, I believed, I trust, it's me. I made a faith decision. Not a huge fan of the phrase. It actually wasn't your decision. Supernaturally, spiritually, it is a work of God. Jesus, his name means Yahweh saves, God saves, not you, not me. In fact, this is something I believe and rely upon. My preaching will not get you into the kingdom of God. I could not be good enough, winsome enough, use the right words. I can't do it. Might as well get these words and speak to the wall. The only thing that's going to get you is that you hear the Spirit of God's words from His Word preached. It's the Spirit of God does His work and changes your heart. Like He holds a king's heart in His hand and can turn it which way or that, He takes your heart and He's the one that saves you. 
Please do not be tempted and do not believe that you are the one who brought salvation to the table. It's by grace alone, through Christ alone, that you are saved. Which means, if you don't believe you're saved yourself by saving yourself, it means we also want to guard against grumbling like Israel. See, if if you believe that actually it's God that saves you, it should leave you in wonder. It shouldn't leave you grumbling. Christians ought to be thankful people, grateful people. Sometimes I think Christians become angry people, grumbling people, whinging people, attacking people, tearing down people, nitpicking people. That is not the shape of Christians. We ought to be thankful and grateful. And and to be trusting means your thankfulness will be the opposite of Israel in the wilderness. It means that we'll be overjoyed. And thirdly, that will be expressed in this, prayer. I know that's a given, right? Christians pray. But I think our prayerlessness is actually a symptom of our faithlessness. See, when you don't pray, you're actually saying, God, I can handle this on my own, thanks. Our prayerlessness says, I've got this, God. I'll come to you for the big stuff. But generally, I've got life handled. Prayerlessness is us saying, I actually don't trust you with everything. But given that being born again by his spirit, we ought to be praying with a thankfulness and praying like other people's lives depend upon it. Like we're to be a praying church. I would like to reinstate our prayer service at some stage. That's just my personal little thing. Come the afternoon and evening for a prayer service. We'll sing songs. We'll do some small doctrinal teaching. And we'll spend half an hour congregational praying. Every, everyone, you can pray 30 seconds. And pray for the lost. Wouldn't that be great? That would be my little dream. I get people busy. It's busy. Busy time of year. We're starting up lots of ministries. I'm looking after Rochester Church. There's lots on. I get it. But wouldn't it be good if once a month we had a prayer service that was just congregational prayer? That we as a congregation would have a culture that we together are relying upon God to do what only He can do. So that when He does what only He can do, people would say, it's not Reforming Church. It's not Russ. It's not anyone there. You know what happened? God did something. And He gets the glory. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's the shape of us who are born again, who believe. Let's pray now, because that's who we are. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that salvation is truly your work. And so we ask, save more. Thank you for saving us because we get to see the cross of Christ and what and who he has done and who he is for us. And we pray now, we're asking that for those of us who are here listening, who are not yet born again, who don't yet believe, that they would, like Nicodemus, check in, see, examine, look, listen, ask these things. 
and then ask, how can these things be for me? And then turn to Jesus and believe. Father, we're asking you to do what only you can do, a supernatural work. Please, we pray, do it again. We ask that you would give all the grace and get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.